Hello there, listeners, and welcome back to the Speaking Generally podcast with maestro Stephen Hussey and chief conductor Georgie Boy Taylor. Who's higher in the hierarchy? I, I don't know. That's why I wanted to go sort of, um, I wouldn't go abstain and go neutral on it. So I, think, I think both of those lead the orchestra in their own special way. You're the conductor and then the guy with the big kettle drum that gets used once. <laughs> what what is a maestro george i don't know isn't it just the word for you know like a very capable music musician i don't know you'd call up mozart would be the maestro i guess like the brains the brains behind the operation big classical music yeah. buff here well i've just looked it up it can mean a distinguished conductor or performer uh in any sphere but predominantly classical music mm. uh there you go that's that's your learning. That's speaking generally for the week, everyone. Well done. <laughs> Thanks, guys. See you later. Uh, so welcome to another episode of Speaking Generally. Uh, we are back in old lockdown. Uh, I think we well, have to well, get... we're still in it, aren't we, I suppose? Yeah, I, I don't think we can avoid that elephant in the room. Uh, that is what's happening. And uh, we're both um, on different edges of sanity, I think that's fair to say. I... Uh, <laughs> As in, you're doing really well and I'm breaking down. <laughs> I think we oscillate, George. We're like a seesaw. One, one <laughs> is losing it and the other pulls them back from the brink. Yeah. Um, no, I've, I've, had, uh, I've had different ups and downs throughout. I mean, it's been a while since we spoke to our listeners. I, uh, I feel good right now, but I am, I'm more and more dreaming of flying away, George. The... the <laughs> Predominant thoughts are I'm sort of fantasizing now about where I might escape to, and you're you know, sort of living that Bruce Springsteen, you know, just got to blow this town sort of vibe, right? Get out of this town full of losers. Yeah, um, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Just more and more, I'm thinking, oh well, maybe there's a safe little pocket somewhere in the world, and that place doesn't have much. Maybe what if I went there and they seem to be living quite normally? Yeah, That's all they need. I'm having fantasies a bit about that, but then I think, yeah, I might get there and they might go, sorry, sir, <laughs> you're going to have to stay in a little, a little shack for two weeks to isolate yourself. Um, yeah, yeah, they might not. But how, how are you, buddy? <laughs> Similar. I, I think you actually alluded to it in the last episode we did and I nipped you in the bud because uh, I wanted to make sure it was sort of signed and sealed before I got excited about it. But I do, I do have something very promising on my horizon that is certainly keeping things ticking along, which is, has been really useful. So my girlfriend slash fiance has got, got a job in the US starting in September. So all being well with travel, we'll be moving there for two two years i think so that's definitely like a really exciting silver lining that kind of flies in the face of being trapped in your trapped in your house for months at a time so that's that's definitely giving me giving me something to work towards it makes it a lot easier to just sort of potter around day to day in the meantime so yeah i've i've kind of put all my eggs in one basket and have just deferred all gratification until then really uh that is pretty exciting and i uh you know, I may uh, just end up following you there, George. <laughs> yeah, I, I would like. I, you know, again, I'm dreaming of going anywhere right now. But this is our. This was our really roundabout way of getting shot of you as well. So that's going to have backfired if you do that. Yeah, Elizabeth's going to be happy when I show up, aren't I? <laughs> 
Um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's great, and uh, you know, getting George in the old USA. I mean, what the possibilities that can happen are endless. I'm just uh, going to eat a lot. I imagine that's probably probably the gonna, first step. You're going to eat a lot. You, the road trips, George, we can do. I mean, we've we've done. It's we now. It's we now. Is it? It's just brazenly <laughs> we. Let, let, let me dream. I, mean, <laughs> I just think we've done trips. We went to Japan. We've been to Europe together. We, you know, we haven't. I don't think we've ever been in uh, older. Uh, you know, old Dixieland together. <laughs> no, no, we certainly haven't. Um, <laughs> just yeah, thought but... cruising along maybe the south, deep south of the USA and coming up to California, searching for our gold. Um, <sighs> you know, you're a literary man. We can recreate many sort of great literary trips across the USA. Yeah, that, that, could, that could be the way to go. I'm certainly very excited for that. Um, yeah, we'll be we'll be plonking ourselves down in in Jersey, in Jersey. So the Bruce Springsteen thing kind of comes comes nicely together for that as well, and then we can sort of stare vacantly into the west. Yeah, look look west and um, hit the road. That'd be great. Maybe we could go to many states and do a podcast from each one, talking about sort of good books, movies, flavors from that state. I'd absolutely love that. That's quite a big commitment. Um, but I'm not averse to it. I think that, do you know the singer, that's Sufjan Stevens? He, he sort of threatened to make an album about every state. And I think he made, he made two and then he gave up. <laughs> he, did, like, he did an Illinois one and uh, like a Michigan one. And uh, yeah, that was, that was him finished. He's, he's like that's actually quite a lot completely burnt out yeah I mean I think it might be a bit easier and breezier to do a podcast per state but still you're racking up the miles aren't you I don't even know if Prince managed 50 albums no definitely not um, 50 yeah, Bruce, Spring, Bruce Springsteen of course did do an album about the state of Nebraska did yeah there, there probably is a great album about every state but I don't I don't think they're all by one artist so uh well so i mean if if the listener if we've got any listeners knocking around in in new jersey even give me some some big food tips they would be much appreciated anything i can get my grubby little mitts on really yeah well the u.s is our biggest listenership george so fabulous well yeah fight just i'm i'm really all about seeking out regional foods and gorging on them until they're not really enjoyable anymore so yeah any anywhere in any state with a great regional food let me know and I'll, uh, I'll come and consume it. There you go. That's promise. <laughs> Put that in the bank. <laughs> so uh, what have your, um, you know, I guess, I guess not a lot has happened since the last podcast. <laughs> um, it's, uh, I, well, I'll, I'll just sort of fill you in, George. I am still, uh, I'm still going for runs. They're getting a bit less frequent and that got a bit worrying because obviously as, Listeners who track this podcast know I had a famous weight loss last year and I'm uh, very cautiously trying to white knuckle hold on to it. During <laughs> Are you hanging on by the skin of your teeth? It's just a lot more, there's a lot more free time, George. There's a lot mm. more, you know, I used to have these things that would, these little hacks where, okay, I'm feeling a bit hungry. I want a snack right now. I'm going to go for a walk, go get yeah. Starbucks coffee just kind of have a stroll and kind of you know do other things to sort of not sit and snack and you know those are sort of stripped away when it's now i'll 
move from the living room to the kitchen or you know i can go for a run every day but then you're sort of like making sure you're distance from people and it's all a bit more thought so um yeah it like sort of <laughs> jokes aside it's difficult isn't it because uh, you obviously want to maintain what your life was like before all this happened and try and keep things on an even keel but without the same levels of stimulation or opportunities to do other things you it's not an equivalent opportunity to keep that up right so there's probably quite a sensible school of thought to say like just let the wheels come off for a little bit because this is really not normal circumstances and whatever it takes you to sort of get through the day if that's hitting the biscuit tin a bit harder i don't don't think it matters too much i mean you're going to be very motivated when this finishes to like get back out and running and doing all those things right so part of me thinks whatever it takes to get through it there's sort of no no real shame in that yeah I'm, i i try not to um bother judging as if i had all the resources as before yeah. i do you know i think it's like controlling so that you don't like you don't want to have to have a heroic mission to get back in shape afterwards but, um, yeah of course yeah it depends what your personal goals are right but I, if you're trapped indoors all day and the biscuit cupboards next to you and you're kind of bored i mean if you can't tuck into them now when can you i'd like to stay in my size 32 waist jeans that would be a you know big there um but uh, yeah, I find well, it's just. Have you well. been wearing? Have you worn jeans since the lockdown started? Let's be honest. I've not worn anything I've worn, with. I've worn them twice, and and it was almost as a sort of novelty thing to do. After <laughs> day, like, oh, I'm gonna. It's Monday. I'm gonna pop on a pair of jeans. Yeah, by Monday lunchtime, you're back it back in your little pants, aren't you? Yeah, back in the pajamas. Um, yeah. But uh, running every day gets kind of tedious, and you just. I used to be able to pop to the gym, do something else, do some weightlifting, do different things. So, you know, luxury problems, but it is just, uh, yeah, it, it does feel a little bit more difficult to do. But um, what else? I've been, I've been learning, I've been still pressing away with learning more Japanese, George. Uh, how's, that, how's that coming along? How's the Spanish? I mean, the Japanese is just reading, isn't it? So it's going to be hard for us to quantify that. But how's your Spanish? Japanese and Spanish at the same time. So, I mean, I'm... I'm learning the uh, the writing of Japanese actually help. It's not for me to write. I'm learning how to read the characters because it's right, actually okay. helps quite a bit with learning the language. Can be able to, I don't know, see connections between things. The uh, yeah, the Spanish is is fine. I think it's weirdly helping to learn two together. Um, yeah, I don't know why, but it sort of is. Um, and uh, what? And I'm also getting getting better at chess i'm going up in the elo rankings but i'm, I'm not i'm still not very cool. the rock the rock band <laughs> yeah it's just um, you and jeff lynn head to head <laughs> and and chess you know what i realized about chess is it's such a it's such a game where you you cannot hide at all there is absolutely no excuse ever for losing apart from your own inadequacy and so it's probably the most humbling and frustrating game you can have like when you get better you feel brilliant and when you beat people you couldn't previously beat but you can see everyone's exact ranking which is relative to all other players and it's just calculated by an algorithm based on your wins and losses and you've never got a, a, an excuse that the draw came badly that something put you off it's just mm. you playing pure logic against someone else's logic and will you beat them? 
yeah there's not like oh it was raining i slipped on the muddy pitch or whatever you don't have any of those excuses do you yeah or scrabble you know you go i got a bad i got bad letters that time yeah. you know it's not really my problem there's no element of chance thrown in there except for i got drawn black or white but at lower levels that's that's not as decisive as maybe at grandmaster levels uh yeah so it's yeah it's it's uh it's a fascinating frustrating experience but it does feel amazing when you go up like a hundred points the way you were before. You start to feel like you're very clever and then you're not. Um, What's the plan? You'll master that and then it'll be checkers, will it? <laughs> Once I do that, then I'm going to master the ancient Chinese game of Go and, <laughs> and we'll, be, uh, we'll be all done for quarantine. So yeah, perfect. Double grandmaster. Uh, no, I don't, I don't con myself I'm going to be some great chess player, but it, it is gratifying to have some measurable level of improvement. Yeah, that's nice, yeah. Uh, yeah, what about you, mate? Have you, have you taken up anything new? <laughs> well, you put me on the spot there. No, no I don't. I, I'm racking my brain, Steve, but not too much has been happening here, I have to say. Um, You're a hobbyist anyway, like you taught yourself to bake very well you, you're sort of good at sort of finding a thing and getting good at it like your coffee you like to make lots of different coffee don't you yeah i suppose i mean they, they feel a little bit more self-indulgent as activities that well maybe they're not because i could make someone a lovely cup of coffee maybe it's a bit more um social possibly i'm not sure i wouldn't categorize those things as hobbies but i suppose they are um i've been cooking a lot i do quite enjoy that there's something quite nice about uh, we've been going and doing a big food shop maybe every two and a half three weeks and you know buying everything going kind of mental and then knowing that you've got a fully stocked larder and that you can sort of pick and choose ingredients and knowing they're all there is is a very nice uh, luxury to have so i've been reveling in that you know whereas when we lived in london the shopping you could do would be maybe as much as you could fit in a shopping basket here. I've got the luxury of doing it and filling my car. So yeah, ha- having a lot more food to hand gives you a bit more opportunity to play with. I don't know. I don't really cook from recipes, but trying I don't know, Chinese spices instead of, you know, Indian spices, mixing things up a bit like that has been fun. Um, but it's also a necessity of living. So I don't know how much it is really, really exciting after sort of six weeks of it. Um, yeah, otherwise, Steve, usual suspects, books, books and films. Books and films. Yeah. Well, uh, that, that leads us nicely onto this, uh, this episode. We're, we're kind of doing some, are they, are they quarantine recommendations, George? Yeah, they are, aren't they? I mean, ev- everything's going to have, you know, just, it's like sticking the little eye in front of any piece of tech equipment made after sort of 2001. It's like anything that comes about now is quarantine related. Right, of course. You know, oh, this is my quarantine exercise routine, quarantine recipe, quarantine recommendation. It, it's <laughs> it's going to be lumped in under that umbrella. No, sure, sure. Um, uh, yeah, fair enough. Well, we, uh, you know, we're giving the listeners what they want, and they're they're, you know, this is this is the quarantine recommendation is listening to this podcast, and then you can toddle off and do all of these lovely things we'll give to you now. But um, George, you're you're a great. I, I see you as my sort of recommendation algorithm, and I'm sure a lot of listeners do as well. I have people tell me, you know, you know, oh, Georgia always has great things. He's, you know, <laughs> telling us about on the podcast, or he's so clever. And I'm, Why don't you pass that I, on to me? I, I say, don't keep saying that. Don't. <laughs> 
like fine. But, you know, let's talk about both hosts, both great hosts together. Um, you shut up about him, yeah? <laughs> yeah, well, he might not be on it for much longer. <laughs> how, many, uh, how many Twitter followers has he got? Because I'm getting a bit... I'm getting used to him. Um, yeah, so people enjoy your recommendations, George. Um, so have you, have you gone into these with any new mindset? Have you been looking for escapism or have you just sort of acknowledged your whims and fancies? More. I've got eight things here that I'd like to recommend and seven of them are kind of things I've pulled out of the archive, as it were, whereas one of them is something I, I watched recently and it was a lovely bit of escapism during the the current setup so maybe i'll start with that one because that's the most recent thing i've i've consumed myself and i know it's on netflix and is accessible for everyone and then the others will um will plumb through afterwards so i'm going to start steve with the film at eternity's gate which is a kind of latter years biopic of vincent van gogh van gogh however you're going to say it i'm not going to be saying it right because i'm not dutch um the 63, maybe 64-year-old Willem Dafoe playing the 36, 37-year-old Vincent, Vincent um, and doing a <laughs> cracking job of it. He, I mean, he looks great for yeah, 63, and I suppose Vincent looks absolutely knackered because he's, he's really been through the ringer. But um, it's a re- really good film for for what it is, kind of Netflix-made made number. Uh, I think he was Oscar-nominated for his performance, and it's just filmed on on and in the locations that he was painting in so really beautiful setting the lighting and everything about the film's really nice and there's moments where um he's painting where he's living in the yellow house and he's painting his shoes in the room uh or the shoes on the chair maybe by the bed i can't remember the exact setup but it's it's like a first person immersion into him doing that painting it's almost like we're wearing a vr headset for a moment you're kind of in that room and it all just it all feels very real so you know it's not one of the most intensely plotted or anything like that but it just immerses you into his world in a really engaging way and gets you out and about into the countryside and into a different period than we are of course living in now it also teases a little bit of a an alternative theory for how he died but I think a lot of the hype or press for the film was about that, but it's not really significant to the plotting or anything. It's just an additional little aside that features, but a very distracting and engaging watch for sure. What's the name of that? At Eternity's Gate. Eternity's Gate. So they didn't de-age the firm at all for it? Not, not, Not in any kind of CGI way that they've done for, say, Carrie Fisher in Star Wars or anything like that, or the, that they did for um, uh, the Irishman. No, he he's just got got ginger beard and uh, wearing old timey clothes. But um, yeah, I think he lo- he looks like an old thirty eight year old. But uh, you would not say he was in his mid sixties. He does a great job of it. Do they have him sort of do a little Dutch accent, or is he playing American? No, he's he's got his normal. I don't know where he's from, Minnesota. Where's he from? Wisconsin, maybe. Um, yeah, he's just got an American accent. Oscar Isaacs plays um, Paul Gauguin, and oh. there's yeah, it's got a good cast. There's some good people in it, but yeah, it's it's just a very like a visual treat. I would say. I think we also talked up that other Van Gogh film that that was kind of depicted in the style of painting, like an animated film. This is 
again, they both cover the later years of his life because I guess that's when everything was happening. But um, yeah, this is well worth a watch for sure. Yeah, well, Van Gogh didn't start painting till very well late for a painter, right? In his like yeah. close to thirty or something. So yeah, I think he did you know eight hundred paintings in three years, and that's kind of the bulk of his work in his last three years. So yeah, it's obviously all the biopics and things are going to focus on that period. Pretty wild, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's, it's mad. I mean, it'd be a good time to learn to paint like that, wouldn't it? In this quarantine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating because he, he didn't live long and he started late. So it's just awful. Yeah, I think the thing I found really interesting about it was because it you're kind of in situ when he's doing his paintings and then you think, well, that piece of paper or that canvas, you know, survived from 1870 in a field in France. Someone looked after it, put it in a cupboard, you know, put it in a an auction and it's and it's really weird to think of those physical artifacts existing i think the more you, th- you think about these sort of uh, impactful art images they sort of the image or the depiction in it is separate from the material object but if you actually sort of follow the linear journey that the material artifact followed it's kind of crazy you know hundreds of people will have handled it it'll have been knocked about before it was considered valuable might go missing, might come back. Yeah, amazing, really interesting. Maybe that's why the museum actually going experience is so superior to sort of the digital experience because there is something about the actual artifact as opposed to you're not just admiring the particular subject. No, of course, but I don't necessarily have that experience when I'm in a museum. I don't think, oh, there I am stood in front of the Venus de Milo and that was the one he was carving away at I, I don't necessarily have that feeling while I'm there whereas you know it's a film but seeing the depiction of it being made kind of gave that the the real tangible item that that history kind of came back to life again I think there's something about the museum setting takes me away from that reality I can see that um uh all right what else you got what else you got on your little list you want me to keep on cracking um I'm going to bounce from I'm going to bounce from a film to a book, Steve, and I'm going to keep it on a semi-arts theme. This is a novel called Sudden Death by the I'm going to stick my neck out and say Spanish. I think he's Spanish, Alvaro Enrique. I mean, you'll tell me, Steve. You're fluent now. Does that sound Spanish to you? <laughs> that it sounds legitimate. It's certainly from one of the Spanish-speaking nations, but I think it is Spain. May may not be correct, but it doesn't really matter. Um, and it's it's an excellent kind of I don't know post maybe postmodern novel, but it's set during the Renaissance, and it it's a bit like an extended version of the tennis scene it, or the tennis passage in the the Martin Amis novel Money. It's um, a tennis game between Caravaggio, the painter, and various other you know I think Cervantes is in there, and Berlin crops up. All these very prominent figures from that period are. Uh, battling out over the tennis court and then there's all these sort of philosophical musings and artistic musings it's just a really fun engaging thoughtful yeah beautiful novel um fairly contemporary i think it's maybe four years old um it's got a lovely green cover that caught my eye uh because i often do judge books by their covers and uh, yeah it stands up it's excellent so yeah sudden death by alvaro enrique sudden death alvaro enrique uh that's great. Is it a lot? Is it a long one? No, it's a little, maybe two hundred and fifty pager. 
Wonderful. And uh, how did you how did you find that book? I genuinely think I saw it on a shelf with a lovely green cover and thought, that's a lovely shade of green. And uh, had a flick through it and it sounded good. It would probably have been on a table of, you know, best contemporary novels in a in a nice bookshop. So they, they did most of the heavy lifting for me. How much do I discover if they've already gone through the process of finding it and putting it on the table? But, you know, that's that's the way these things work. It is interesting, though, because I don't think I actually purchase books like that. I hardly ever do it that way, where I just sort of thumb through in a bookstore and see something, you know, contemporary and new that mm. I think and buy it. I usually have to have heard and read about it and seen reviews. And I'll go, oh, I saw a review for that in The Times the other day. Oh, what's that book? And that's usually I have to have some familiarity, but... Maybe maybe that says you're a bit more brave than I am, George. I mean, I've I've say. worked in bookshops, you know, on and off in my in my earlier days. So I, I suppose I put a lot of stock in the knowledge of a lot of booksellers. If you're working in a you know like a nice bookshop, you, you're certainly going to know your stuff. You're probably going to have earlier access to a lot of things than than reviewers would at newspapers, and you've got probably a better relationship with the publishers as well so you know what's happening you're kind of plugged in and they're they're constantly curating their tables to to get the most sort of sexy and prominent stuff in front of their customers so yeah if if you let let the bookseller do the curating for you you know they've done a lot of the heavy lifting and chances are chances are there'll be some good stuff so it's certainly a good good tip would be sniff around the tables because often bookshops are going to be organizing them by you know a london bookshop best novels about london that kind of stuff that they'll find a, a relevant interest category and distill it down to the best you know 15 or 20 or so so yeah that that and it, it may have even been from a you know booksellers recommended shelf in a bookshop i'll always always go and have a little, little rummage through those as well you find a lot there so um yeah I, be brave in that front you'll find some good stuff um all right well we're on a roll give us a, give us more uh, it's all oh coming it's all very one way today isn't it um another film steve um a massive change in tone and well i suppose it's another biopic in a way but certainly not artistic um although in many ways their imagery is probably become the most prominent imagery on the face of the earth it's the film the founder about the founding of mcdonald's and mm. uh starring michael keaton just a great fun romp through the development of a burger restaurant uh through what i guess late 40s early 50s and through the first half of the film particularly is really engaging um, and kind of exciting to follow the journey he goes on um, and seeing how such a kind of small milkshake magnet enterprise, milkshake salesman, I suppose he was, sort of developed into the, the linchpin of such a huge kind of global spectacle. But yeah, it's, it's a fun, like really engaging, quite glossy little biopic about a very important um, consumer individual like leader i guess yeah good fun great performance really interesting so yeah in the uk mcdonald's has shut all of its stores during the all of its restaurants during the quarantine and i think there's been a little bit of talk today start of may that they're going to gradually open them up so i think that's why it came back into my conscience and uh yeah good fun definitely check it out i uh yeah i saw that film last year and really enjoyed it and uh it's um 
yeah, I think I think the, the sort of Ray Kroc character they make is really uh, really distinct and sort of part of that lineage of sort of these these uh, in the film at least. I don't know a lot about the real Ray Kroc, but um, that, that sort of film business sort of megalomaniac almost. Yeah. There's a even lineage to like the film Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal, who he sort of has that same streak, and uh, right. even like a Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood. I feel like there's a film lineage of these people who almost become like career or business sociopaths. Yeah, like crazy driven, one track minds. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I feel you could almost trace a lineage with those characters, but um, but yeah, it's really good as well because it is actually. Yeah, it does actually give you some of the history of how McDonald's actually grew from a couple of guys who had a burger place. Yeah, and just like the, oh, I don't know, mise-en-scene or whatever it would be of the film, like the cars are great. They capture the mood really well. The, you know, it, it captures the period really nicely. It's, it's a nice and distracting watch for sure. It's very kind of sunny and optimistic in a kind of capitalist, consumerist way, but um, good fun. You also realise the actual innovation that was that the whole process when it first began that we sort of take for granted now, but the whole process of churning out cooked burgers really quickly, it was actually a massive sort of production innovation. Yeah, it's like a kind of Henry Ford <laughs> application to, to, yeah, to food, just a complete game changer of taking that production line and, yeah, I guess reducing each individual's role so that they are serving a very sort of singular function in a in a bigger chain and um yeah churning out big macs by the by the billion and uh and you've had a few if i'm come right. on come on and that's not again i'm that's not a knock at all i'm just saying you are a man who does like a mcdonald's i've i've done my fair <laughs> i've done my fair share steve yeah i think that's fair to say another reason i'm very much looking forward to getting to the u.s and really you know really getting my claws in because food-wise, I think my my indulgence would more be a takeaway pizza. Whereas I'd say when we lived together, you were very much you were quite a sort of pop to McDonald's and get get some <laughs> burger, man. Maybe, yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, you can't. I'm not saying you that, know. Was your, that was your daily occurrence. I'm just that that would be a difference I would put between us. Large quarter pounder meal, single cheeseburger, and nine chicken nuggets. Don't worry about it. Say you watch by it. <laughs> See, I would be in there trying to think, like, what do I fancy? Yeah. yeah. A bit of everything there. Whereas pizza, I'm thinking pepperoni passion, extra cheese. Uh, <laughs> garlic and herb dip, three barbecue, maybe get some of the Domino's cookies for dessert. Mm. <laughs> well, that's, I don't know what that... <laughs> I don't know if that was judgment of me or the pizza or the order. Well, I, don't, I think there was a little bit of, you know, there was a sort of slip, slipping back into a sort of delighted state just for a minute. Um, <laughs> oh, you were just having a reverie just thinking. Yeah, that was a little moment for me. <laughs> well, I think they're still delivering pizza, so you can... <laughs> Come on, mate. I'm trying to keep, uh, keep the cooking going. <laughs> um, a bit of a... Just as a film that, you know... It's kind of on the nose for escapism, George, but it is sort of what, like I said, my mind is on the skies, as it were, thinking of flying, which now seems 
to have taken on impossible glamour in my mind at the moment. Um, just the idea of being able to board a plane again. Um, but the George Clooney film, Up in the Air. Ooh. <laughs> is that not a film about everyone losing their jobs? It, it is. Yeah. Um, you're bringing that up. Okay, mm. fine. Uh, it's, uh, well, then it's a film for our times. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's one that is actually, I don't know, it's got, it's got a really, its mood is fun. It's mm. kind of, it kind of nicely flips between dramatic and comic. Uh, I think it's Clooney at some of his best. Uh, it's kind of just this guy who's living this kind of quite transient existence flying all over the place. And his job is actually to sort of tell people they are being uh, laid off at work. But it's uh, it's kind of a film about the sort of transient lifestyle he lives. And uh, It's nice to see him play a bit of a bit of a dick, really, isn't it? Like, well, he's not a dick, but just doing so... You know, he get you know such a handsome guy and everything. He's usually playing quite a nice character. So to see him have to do something very like realistic but unpleasant is there's like a nice sort of like a sort of sick thrill from seeing that pan out. Yeah, and it's uh, and it's like he plays off uh, Anna Faris well, and it's sort of Ken- like, yeah. is it Kendrick? I think it might be Kendrick. Anna Kendrick. Um, and it's sort of that, you know, younger and older, like generational gap between them. But it's, uh, yeah, it's like a fun film, a fun watch if you haven't. And that that film sort of def- travel in a certain way where he uh, is funny because he knows everything about how to make travel really seamless mm. and everything. Uh, yeah, it's a good. One. Yeah, that that kind of film. Like, I'm always on the lookout for those sort of late. What would it be? Early sort of 2010s, maybe maybe late noughties, early 2010s, like quite well-made, looks quite slick, got a recognisable actor, but isn't, you know, a super big name Hollywood film that you kind of miss. They're the best kind of films, like The Hidden Gem on Netflix. To find those sorts of things is, like, is like always a, a delight. Like a bang on one would be like Moneyball for that. 100%, yeah, 100%. Moneyball's probably the, probably the best one of those films, actually. Um, yeah, there's tons. Or, there's a lot of... Um, like prisoners with Jake Gyllenhaal, I think that uh, that fits that bill really nicely. Um, yeah, that's that's my. They're almost my guilty pleasure. But they're not. But they're often like films you would recommend. So I don't know if they're guilty because you'd be like, yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah I don't. I've, I think I've gone on record and said before I don't believe in guilty pleasures. But more that kind of. <sighs> You wouldn't. I wouldn't actively seek them out, and then it pops up, and you think, "Oh, that looks like it could be good," because it looks like it'll be quite shiny and easy on the eye. And then it also happens yeah. to be well acted and well directed, or whatever. It's sort of a double double whammy. Well, that film Prisoners. I only heard. I literally was at my my brother's friend Paul. I was at their flat in London, and he said, "Oh, I'm going to watch this film tonight. Do you want to watch it with me?" I'd never heard of Prisoners. It stars Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. Massive actors. It's directed by Dennis Villeneuve, who's a yeah. huge actor, did Sicario Arrival. And I was like, why, do, why have I never heard of this yeah. at all? Uh, even though it existed. It's, uh, did you watch it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's great, right? Like, what's funny as well is it, all the little, I guess, like the icons it gets on Netflix, most of the time when I ever see it crop up, it doesn't show the cast. It usually just says like prisoners over a blue back blue background that just looks very uninspiring i think it's those ones that are the really great finds there's no, it, it doesn't really sing but if you dig into it it turns out you've got a real hidden gem 
Yeah, and it's sort of, you just think that's going to be some generic action film. If you hear Prisoners or something, you think, yeah, whatever. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, another one that was, I'm, I'm, is on my watch list, George, but I've not seen it yet. But um, it might be up that street. Jameson recommended it to me. Uh, Molly's Game, directed by Aaron Sorkin, his directorial debut. Um, yeah, I've not seen that. That's the um, Jessica Chastain poker film. Yeah, Jessica Chastain playing. I think it's like a real life story of, of uh, a woman who rose up in poker. Um, yeah, but I'd, uh, but that that could be one of those sort of finds. Yeah, uh, Sor- Sorkin's got that. You know, if <laughs> I guess the high watermark of these kinds of films, because it got a lot, you know, a lot of great reception. And everything would be the the Facebook film of which name the name escapes me for some stupid reason the network. yeah social network right that that sort of has all of those credentials it's not there's not like a big buzzy like explosions or anything going on but it's just super slick and the Sorkin dialogue really works there but I well, can that's smash hit, right? yeah that's yeah. what I mean that's that's like the example of one of those films smashing if that's a sort of nine or ten out of ten any film like that that's sort of seven or eight is still great viewing yeah yeah I agree um, well, I'll, I'll go to a different one, George, very different vibe, but I'm, I'm curious if you've seen this film because it's one I come back to a lot and I recommend. I'm, I'm uh, thinking a lot about sci-fi at the moment because I feel like it has a lot of sort of escapist quality of, you know, if you just want something that's really going to sort of take you out of the sort of mundanity of being at home a lot. Um, have you seen the film Gattaca? Yes, I have. Um, enjoyable. I watched that in the Univ Common Room, Steve. There you go. It's one of my top sort of sci-fi recommends that many people haven't seen. And it's sort of one that's so... I I really, really rate it because I think the premise is so believable and they really actually explore the consequences of what that world would mean in a really sort of thorough way. And it's it's Ethan Hawke and Jude Law. And it's sort of... um, you know, it's sort of, it's supposed to be, I don't know how far, far flung future, not that far flung, but it's the, the point of it is, is that people are discriminated against based on their genetics. And, uh, you, you know, you can genetically engineer children to be better looking, smarter, fitter, whatever you want. And so people who are born the natural way are seen as slightly uh, an underclass or defective and, you know, Ethan Hawke is someone who was born the natural way and it's kind of his uh, his push and struggle to try and, through determination, sort of get into this space program that's very prestigious and everyone is discriminated against, though, based on their genetics. And it's, it's some of those things where I thought, wow, if, if they ever really did get to the point of being able to improve people at birth, this would definitely be an issue. <laughs> yeah. But, it would unquestionably, if you could decide to have, you know, 20 more IQ points to a child or have them be better at certain things, it would, yeah, it's sort of, it sort of was one of those things where it's scary thinking this would happen so quickly and rich people would get an advantage. And yeah, um, so it, I thought it was very interesting. It's really good. It's really well made, like great sets and like production values behind it as well. It's really good. Who directed it? I can't remember. Um, I don't even know who directed it. Um, it was oh Andrew Nichol. Okay, not super familiar with him. 
It's got a great soundtrack, though, by Michael Nyman, who is a great film soundtrack composer. Um, a maestro, so if you will. <laughs> a maestro. Um, another one I watched, George, which was sort of just a little, sort of, um, a little bit of a frivolity, but just a fun, breezy watch, was uh, Francis Ha. Yeah, that's, that is good fun, the Greta Gerwig. Yeah, it's Greta Gerwig sort of hanging out in New York, being young, being a bit anxious, and she's like a bit of a hot mess, I guess you'd describe it. <laughs> but uh, she's, uh, yeah, and it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of a very of our time film about a sort of, you know, 20-something uh, with really not sure what she's doing and sort of, sort of bumming around Brooklyn a bit, sort of struggling to be a dancer and... Uh, it's yeah, quite I just, sweet, I remember it being. It's not, um, she's not like completely disdainful. No, and it's not, it, it makes her, it doesn't pull punches where she's just like, oh, she's so adorable, but she is a, it's a good example of doing likeable despite flawed. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I thought it was an enjoyable watch and I like, I pretty much like everything I've seen of Greta Gerwig. I liked Lady Bird a lot. I, uh, I've got little women on my to watch list, but, uh, yeah, I, I like most things she's been involved with. So, nice. Yeah, that, that would be a good peppy, peppy film to watch in the current climate, for sure. Kind of pop on any of, like, her and Noah Baumbach work together sometimes, but um, any of her or Noah Baumbach stuff, I think, is good sort of fodder for sort of some... I have to say, I watched his first film, um, so I think that just crept, crept onto Netflix quite recently. The name escapes me, um, but it's really really not very good at all um it didn't feel like him it felt tonally very different to the other things he's done um i guess maybe because it's it's not set in new york and i feel like his films are very new york films of the ones that i've enjoyed um whereas this was set on a university campus in california i'm just getting the name for you kicking and screaming um yeah it was it was difficult to watch i would say it was it was very, it was four friends leaving university and, um, you know, on the edge of, oh, what are we going to do once we graduate? And it was just a bit like, oh, how smart and intellectual our conversations are. Um, yeah, it was, it was kind of all the things that make his films good were missing and all the things that leave his films a little bit like esoteric and self-congratulatory were very at the surface. And it was right. quite hard, hard to sit through, but he's allowed to get it out of his system. And I think he's gone on gone on to much bigger and better since i think that's true i think lots of directors their, their first film is like edging towards their critic but not quite there like even mm. like a anderson early ones like bottle rocket and that it's like it, it grows into his style like he grows yeah into- bottle rocket does a lot more aesthetically though this was you know it didn't really have any like directorial verve kind of thing. It was just, it's a script film. There wasn't anything else going on. Whereas Bottle Rocket's got a bit more, you know, there's aesthetics at work and camera work and stuff like that. Are you, um, how, by the way, how, uh, how Wes Anderson does the new Wes Anderson trailer look? It's, it's like, he's, he's gone past the point of making a parody of his own film. It's like, I, I love him, but it, it is funny how, like, yeah. like someone is doing an impression of him. Yeah. Yeah, it looks. It does. It does look good, though. If you like his stuff, I mean, what what more could you want, really? No, it does. It it looks like it has like everyone he always has in his films in it as well. Yeah, 
Peter Swinton, Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Ed <laughs> Willem Dafoe, Saoirse Ronan. It's just like they're all popping up. And he knows how to cast like young, like that Timothy Chalamet's in it, right? He knows how to bring in like the kind of cool young actor of the moment always gets, you know, he had Adrian Brody in his films maybe 10 years ago. Like those kinds of people weasel their way in. So he, he keeps younger people interested as well. Timothy Chalamet is like in everything now. He is like popping up. He's like starring in the upcoming June uh, TVs. Yeah, yeah. Like been popping up in, like, he popped up in a Woody Allen film this year. He popped up in... Um, He's in Ladybird, wasn't he? He's in Little Women. Obviously, call me by your name, but he he seems to just be like, oh, we need a young guy to star in this sort of um, artistic film. Uh, Timothy Chalamet. Yeah. Like, he must just get offers every day thrown at him. Yeah, it's like his name. It's like, oh, is he a European actor or is he American? Doesn't matter. Let's get him in. <laughs> get Chalamet on board. Yeah. Um, I just, oh, I just like to address quickly that I've, as I was thinking about it, there is one really nice tracking shot in that first Noah Baumbach film where it's Elliot Gould talking to his son about what he should what he should be doing and how he should be moving on with his life. But it's a really nice shot that he follows them walking around campus, um, done quite well. So I, I owe him an apology for slagging that off, but otherwise the film's rubbish. All right. Um, I, uh, I was just going to say, I feel like Chalamet is having, <laughs> what I call his Jennifer Lawrence moment. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah um, there was a couple of years around sort of 2012 ish where Jennifer Lawrence couldn't, like, there was no movie that couldn't have Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> no. Has she won one Oscar or two Oscars? She won two. Yeah, she had a real streak, didn't she? And then seems to, I mean, she seems to have gone quite quiet. Like, things, I don't know, she starred in that Mother, which was a bit, like, people were iffy about, that Passengers film that people thought was rubbish. Yeah, like, that Red, Red Sparrow, I think, was the other one, was it, as well? That got bad reviews. Yeah, so I feel like she's in this strange, like, patchy moment, but um, maybe maybe should do a big comeback. But yeah, Chalamet's having his... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so, all right, you, uh, well, I've piped a couple. You got any others? You're... Go on then, Steve. Um, I'm going to give you a book, and then I'm going to give you a film. Uh, the book is nice and short, nice and breezy, Um and if you're into sort of literary prizes from a quite controversial year, so it was the it was one of the shortlisted three, I think, for the Pulitzer Prize in 2012, and uh, no, for some reason, no prize was awarded that year. Um, there was a really interesting article by Michael Cunningham who won the Pulitzer Prize in 2000, maybe 99, 2000, 2001 for the Hours, and he was on the panel in 2012 and gives quite an interesting sort of behind-the-scenes look into how these panels operate and make their decisions. And I think the panel put a, put a proposal for a winner forward, but it wasn't accepted by the board for whatever reason, but that's getting really kind of nerdy uh, about things. But the book I'm referring to is Train Dreams by Dennis Johnson, who is um, recently deceased. I think he passed away last year. More known as a short story writer, but has also written a couple of fairly hefty novels. Um, this is the only thing of his I've read. I have three or four of his books on my shelf to read. Uh, but this is a, it's a novella. It's 120 pages uh, set 
during the kind of frontier period of the US and follows a guy as he heads west, heads to California, works as a lumberjack um, and, you know, settles, has a family, does all those things. Really powerful, really beautifully written. And I think it's sat with me longer than many other short books have. I you know, really enjoyed it when I read it, puts it down, but I, I think about scenes from it fairly often. And I've read many other books with similar motifs since reading that and it it stands up as the best of them so yeah probably was deserving of of bigger things at the time i think the other two novels that were nominated that year was uh were swamplandia by karen russell and uh, the unfinished david foster wallace novel um the, the pale king i think but this no doubt would have been the best of the three and um, yeah, a bit of a shame it didn't win because he's a very like kind of lauded American writer and would have been a nice kind of capping off to a very great career. So yeah, highly recommended, short and easy to read. You'll blast through it quickly and it'll really stick with you. Train dreams. Beautiful. Right, got that down. Um, and a film. Uh, the film I have here to recommend is uh, a Danish film, Steve, because my girlfriend is Danish. I like to keep my eye in with uh, with Danish films with subtitles because the language is impenetrable. Uh, the film is called Land of Mine, and it's a film set in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, and it's a true story about how the west coast of Denmark along their big island Jutland was really heavily mined, like lots of landmines on the beaches uh, to prevent any potential invasions. I think it was occupied by Germany during the Second World War. So they mined that whole coast. And as the war ended, there was a big uh, push to remove all the landmines from the coast so people could kind of return to normal life. And it's a very sort of controversial human rights issue because lots of young German prisoners of war, like Hitler Youth kids and, you know, people probably not old enough to really know the decisions they've been making uh, were used as kind of human fodder to clear the minefields and were given very rudimentary training and rudimentary equipment to then, you know, methodically work through the beaches and remove the mines. And this film follows a group of, I don't know, 10 or 15 boys as they go through this process. It's intense watching. Um, beautiful beautiful Danish landscape and all that sort of stuff. Like the Danish coast is quite a striking scene, but there's some very tense, you know, any sort of bomb diffusal moment on screen is quite a difficult watch. And there is a lot of that going on, but you know, a film that I don't think too many people will be familiar with really recommended. Um, Yeah. Very well done. Interesting story that we're not too familiar with. Otherwise uh, well worth a watch for sure. Land of mine. Land of mine. Um, do you uh, do you think that dating a Scandinavian has given you any any insight or particular you know portal into that world, or do you think you got it through the sort of cultural output of films and things like that? Oh, um, she's going to be loving this because she's always she always wants us to talk about her on these things and I'm very, very anti that idea, but, uh, you've probably been, she's probably been at you to ask these sorts of questions. Uh, I mean, we've been going out for a long time. I've been going to Denmark a fair amount. So yeah, I think my, I lived there all last year. Right. So I've had a lot of personal insight into the culture. Um, I think things like Scandi Noir, 
don't really give you a realistic expectation of what Scandinavian countries are like because otherwise everyone would just be murdered and it'd be winter all the time. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, the cultural stuff definitely definitely gives you an extra bit of colour. Like we've read those Karlovic Nausgaard books. They give you a, a kind of fair idea of what it would be like to grow up in those like, sort of semi-socialist country socially democratic countries i suppose in a way that we don't in the uk but um yeah sort of personal interactions with the people there have been far more informative get an idea of just the different social mores they have with i don't know yeah how people socialize how people prioritize home and family over i guess wider socially like social events like in the uk we'd go to pubs they would socialize at home more with a more select group of friends that sort of thing definitely comes about from personal experience um and they're very beautiful countries to homogenize them as a united group they're all all very nice places to be for sure yeah. big shout out to all our scandy listeners big shout out and i think you you definitely introduced me you inaugurated me into scandinavian culture george i think through thank you through you know, you took me to, I think I went to Norway, Sweden and Denmark with you for the first time. Yeah, we did a real whistle top, whistle stop sort of triple threat, didn't we? Yeah, I uh, I have grown to enjoy, you know, even like watching the films like uh, The Square and Force Majeure. Mm. And they, I think they give you an insight into the sort of cultural things they're wrestling with. But they're definitely an interesting place considering the proximity how close they are to us but they're also quite different in a lot of ways yeah and i mean everything everything is quite um stylized right they're they're like they've got a sort of homogenous way of dressing maybe if you're talking very generally people dress in quite a homogenous way there's very distinct architectural approaches that you know really stand out from other other countries as, as they do it as a united block and their, their food and things. It, it seems like as a group, they have just a very set identity that certainly the UK we've bought into as being quite like a signifier for cool almost. I think a lot of the Danes I've met have found it quite amusing almost that we've taken a lot of their things and sort of hold them up as like a, an ideal to strive towards. But um, I guess that's, that's how it always is. Things that are different seem quite exciting. But they've definitely had a, a decade or so of sort of quite a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of people taking a, a big interest in their culture. I'd say. Yeah, I, th- I think last year, was it last year? It might have been the start of this. I think it was last year that Copenhagen was picked as like Lonely Planet's number one destination to visit. And I mean, that's, that's probably the straw that breaks the camel's back in a way because you probably get inundated with a lot more people than a small city can um, handle maybe as a, as a tourist destination but yeah that's always a kind of high watermark of you're doing something right for a sustained period of time i think they're um they're 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 not as weird as the english are they have they have (laughs) they have our sort of so in some ways our social uh what's the word for it not not passiveness a little bit of um reserve yeah the reserve and they have some of that but um i feel like england has a lot more weirdos in it like uk (laughs) Like there's a there's a little more conformity and cool there, and the UK the UK is more diverse probably anyway. It's, it's a numbers game, I think, as well. Though I mean, we've got what sixty five plus million people. Denmark's like four and a half, five million people. Yeah, I, I mean, I know this episode is jumping all over the place, but <laughs> so be it. But um, yeah, the uh, 
the the, th- the more I watch it, well, obviously I've been watching English TV shows my whole life, but when I see a lot of, there's lots of these strange uh, British TV shows that, that show so, so many people here are like quirky hobbyists who have weird projects and strange obsessions and idiosyncrasy. Just, I feel like we have a lot of oddballs. Right. Oddballs with weird like fixations or specific, yeah, it's like, oh, I dreamed of doing a circus and I made a whole a circus in my backyard and a Punch and Judy show and, you know, just something weird like that. It'll be some bloke who spent 10 years, yeah, obsessively collecting a certain kind of models and making his whole life about it. And he looks strange and he looks like a bit of a sort of strange British 70s character. I, I, just, a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of these around. The way in Denmark, my experience was that everyone just collects really expensive furniture and crockery and cutlery. So they don't have time to, you know, make a Punch and Judy show because they're spending £90 per plate to have four really nice plates. Right, right. That's kind of uh, it. That's what everything goes on. Give you one example from my own life, George, and and uh, she doesn't listen to this, so she won't mind. But my, my aunt has like um, who you know in her house. She has this whole uh, shelf of these these sort of porcelain pigs. <laughs> and they're just Dan, little, Danes love bacon and pork, so this is all perfect. These sort of like quite cartoonish, like garish looking porcelain pigs in various, you know, maybe <laughs> ones in sort of dungarees, ones in a suit, ones in office outfit. And she she kept them, she kept them for about 20 years. And basically Halifax, the bank at one point, would set a word giving these as a promotional thing. Like a little piggy bank pig type thing. But he kept them since I was about four years old. And they're there on the shelf and they're like, there's like, 20 of them or more 25 of them just these porcelain pigs and they're just just always there front and center in the kitchen and it's just like i don't know when they were collected or or for what purpose or why i mean i am confident there will be some sort of scandy mentals out there doing similar (laughs) similar stuff sure sure it's just yeah i i do yeah, I, I don't know. Just the more you peer into the English, there's a very weird side to us uh, <laughs> <laughs> in these in these aisles. So maybe it's being a being an island, a small island or something. Um, anyway, um, George, one thing I'm also doing in quarantine is I'm very hungry for knowledge, mm. and I'm finding myself looking for ways to kind of you know, just, just certain ways I can imbibe lots of knowledge. I love a bit of history. I have found YouTube, which is obviously... Is that your big recommendation, is it, is YouTube? YouTube.com. It's, uh, no, I mean, I mean, YouTube is probably the best site in the world, in my opinion. Um, And if you, I've been really enjoying cracking through uh, a channel called Oversimplified. Yeah. Does a, these histories that are actually quick but surprisingly thorough and they've got ones on american civil war french revolution world war ii they've been a really great find that i've been enjoying and also for a huge amount uh crash course by john and hank green um the john green was the author who wrote fault in our stars mm. uh, but, but they made their name on youtube uh, their brother's 
but they kind of have different people on. But the crash courses, they they do it for everything from like, uh, you know, I don't know, great works of literature to history of Europe to, you know, um, organic chemistry to statistics, whatever. But it's really thorough. They put a huge amount, it's a huge amount of work into it. And yeah, they're just great for like, if you want like a great romp through like European history or something, uh, you get tons of detail, tons of little facts you might not have known. It's it's obviously in the grand scheme of things, broad brush strokes, but I feel like it helps. I love looking at things on like timelines or going through sequentially, um, that sort of thing. And it's, uh, yeah, it's great. If you want to like look at Homer's Odyssey or Hamlet or something, uh, yeah, Crash Court YouTube channel. I found that great watching. That's time. really good. I mean, they're, they're the kinds of things that, I don't know, if you're going to take a break from work and you've got 20 minutes to eat your lunch or something, it's like the perfect thing to watch, right? It's informative and it's not going to suck you in like you're watching a film or something a bit more mindless. So yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. And sometimes I just want a, a knowledge on something without having to go and to do the work yeah (laughs) i don't always want to seek out oh i want a whole book about the catholic uh, the protestant reformation or something i just want you know i want some kind of three bullet points for the reformation yeah just give me don't give me all of martin luther's 95 theses just give me the top three what (laughs) were his his major bullet points just give me three of henry's eight wives uh, henry's six wives yeah just three of them what's the important ones um (laughs) Yeah, so they've been good. Uh, well, book recommendation, of course, now, George, since you mentioned Henry, which I'm, yeah. I'm plunged to as we speak, but uh, we, we've just come to the end of Hilary Mantel's great Thomas Cromwell trilogy, uh, started with Wolf Hall and ended with The Mirror and the Light. And I'm, I'm plunging into that right now, George. But have you, have you read the third one now? Or I'm, you... I'm a quarter of the way through it. It's what I'm reading at at this very moment. And uh, yeah, it's fantastic. She maintains a very high bar all the way through thus far. And I'm I'm fairly confident she's going to stick the landing. So, I mean, everyone knows how it ends, but yeah, I've got great confidence that she'll, she'll deliver a big, big finish. They're fantastic and deserve all the praise they get. I think. If you just want some excellent, you know, classic sort of English Kings and history, uh, dramatized in a really compelling way. Uh, yeah, it's uh, not like a it's not like a breezy read. It's quite involved, but it's no. You do have to you have to pay, you have to pay attention. I think the thing that makes it particularly difficult is so many of the characters have the same names. There's like 15 people called Margaret, and it's like which which Margaret's this? Um, yeah. But yeah, she kind of furnishes the books with a character list and usually like a family tree and that sort of stuff which makes them an easier read if particularly if you've not been brought up with british history but yeah they're they're magnificent i read earlier this year i read her first novel um well i don't think it was published first but it was the book she started first a place of greater safety which is about the french revolution and is another kind of 900 page epic and some slightly contrarian people say that it's better than the Cromwell trilogy, but it, I, I would say it really isn't. It, it gets bogged down in some other bits and pieces, whereas the Cromwell books are just constant momentum and are written in a sort of strange present tense that keeps the tempo really ramping up. So, yeah, they're, they're definitely the way to go. I'm, uh, I'm going to – well, what I've got left, George, are two TV shows and a film. Lovely. Um, so TV-wise, uh, I feel we'd be remiss 
people people know me. I guess some people here know me for writing about dating and relationships. And uh, that's a... Uh, oh, no, sorry. Sorry, I just realised that. We'll save that one. We'll save that one. Um, the, the one I uh, wanted to recommend was one that you told me about, George. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the TV show High Maintenance. Here we go. Here we go. Um, yeah, this is a great one because it's kind of, you can really gulp it down easily and it kind of breezes along quickly. And it's a show set in sort of Brooklyn, cool, cool urban Brooklyn, New York. Uh, and it's a kind of guy who's a weed dealer and it's the kind of different characters he encounters going through you know, different jobs in New York. There's lots of them with different issues going on, different relationship problems, uh, stuff he kind of walks in on and is or isn't a part of. But it's uh, it's just a funny, uh, funny kind of droll at times. But it's quite poignant yeah, in places, really right? Poignant, and they 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 managed to do a lot with very short segments. The the original web series is like six or seven minute episodes each. Yeah. Uh, well worth seeking out and then hbo did a full series right they've done a few series now so yeah i think four yeah there's plenty of it and it's very like bite size. you can enjoy a single episode on its own without having to get into like the entirety of the series um it captures yeah. a place like in a way that i've not really experienced as quickly and as well like in th- two episodes three episodes like 10 minutes of content you're so rooted in a kind of slightly bohemian book bohemian brooklyn it's just done incredibly well it brings it to life so so evocatively i'd say the the other show that evokes that very distinctly is probably girls by Lena right Dunham. okay yeah okay much evokes that place of uh, bohemian brooklyn sort of pe- young people but um but this does it in a different way yeah yeah but it's uh but yeah it very much grounds you in that sort of that cool part of new york um yeah and uh the other tv show was another george recommendation that i finally got round to george um finally watched barry didn't i oh it's good isn't it it's great stuff and it's very uh you know, it's it really jumps between funny and dark. Have you seen uh, both series? No, I've seen the first one now. Okay. Um, it very much flits between funny and dark. It's, I guess it is a black comedy, but yeah. about a man who stumbles into trying to become an actor in LA, and it's uh, it's kind of his adventures between those worlds, I guess. In Los the uh, the character uh, is it Noho Hank, the Ukrainian terrorist or sort of gangster is one of the great tv creations that needs to be seen by more people i think uh the one who is the bald, he the big, bald guy very bald the the very yeah. bald one yeah yeah he's uh yeah he's really funny yeah um, yeah it's a fantastic show yeah it, it really does toe that line between yeah i've described it as like a cross between arrested development and breaking bad i think it sort of jumps between those two extremes it's definitely one that I'm surprised more people don't talk about. Mm. Where, whereas, say, like a really, I don't know, Succession is sort of has more buzz about it, which is fantastic show. But yeah, something like Barry, I, I don't think I hear, I don't think I know anyone who. It probably takes a bit more explaining, maybe. Like Succession, it's you know, 
sort of the Rupert Murdoch dynasty sort of dramatized in a, in a way, whereas Barry is like, uh, so he's a hit man. He does a bit of amateur dramatics, but it is really good. Like you need to, to add a lot of caveats to get people to watch it. I think. Yeah. Um, HBO is still, still knocking it out of the park. HBO, yeah. yeah and HBO are making high maintenance as well. So yeah, there's a lot, lot of great stuff there. So take that Netflix. <laughs> Netflix just throws money at something that already exists and goes, oh, it's a Netflix series now. Is well, they've just, they've just done that with the big, um, one of the big three Danish shows. So I think the UK got really hooked on The Killing, The Bridge, and um, Borgen. I mean, not going to be able to say it correctly. The Danish uh, show about their parliament, um, I guess their West Wing equivalent, but with a sort of wholesome Scandinavian flavour and, you know, she's like a female politician, which is mirrored. In fact, the Danish PM now is is a woman as well. And, um, yeah, Netflix has bought the, the first three seasons, which I think came out in like 2011, 12, 13, and have commissioned a fourth season with all the original cast. So, yeah, they've, they've very much cherry-picked an old hit and have just yeah put put a candle under it and tried to I don't want to say flog a dead horse but it feels a little bit like yeah the the stables stable door's been open a while on that one for sure yeah they they sort of did that with Arrested Development sort of made mm. it a net thing um, they just made that popular Israeli series Fowder into a Netflix, mm. a Netflix uh, series so yeah they've uh Definitely get their, their grubby nets on things. Certainly works for them. Does work. Um, yeah. I'm. I'm very much. I'm very much watching a lot of Amazon Prime these days, George. Just because you can grab like a film you haven't seen on there for sort of three quid, and sometimes it's just like I'll watch this for three pounds. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Prime is even with the stuff free and included on Prime is is certainly better for films than Netflix, I would say. Netflix is kind of good for films made after 2000. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they're not, they're not good for reaching back into more classic stuff, Netflix. They, they, uh, and that, that means I've seen a lot because a lot of the new ones I've seen that I want to see. So yeah. yeah. But Prime, I'm finding a lot of old gems. Wonderful. Well, Steve, um, I've, got, I've got an old gem recommendation for you that you, you may well be able to dig out on Prime. It's uh, <laughs> it's really good fun. It's the film Sleuth with Laurence Olivier and Michael Caine. I don't think there's anyone else in the film. And uh, it's a country house, I guess, murder mystery between these two characters. Um, one, one is having an affair with the other, the other's wife, and it's about the the ramifications of that, the the investigation between them. But it's just two fantastic actors, really, really chomping through some great dialogue. And it's very, I don't know, like peacocky. Laurence Olivier is just the most sort of over the top he can be, and Michael Caine's really ramping up the like, Cockney hairdresser in a big lapelled suit, sort of wide boy shtick. Uh, yeah, really good fun. Um, two British actors going toe-to-toe in a sort of arch and wry and quite campy way. Uh, and Steve, it's where the line from This Charming Man, the Smith song, a jumped-up pantry boy who never knew his place, uh, comes from. That's a, an accusation that Olivier levels at Michael Caine's character. So certainly worked for Morrissey. I have 
uh, strangely only seen the remake uh, with uh, Jude Law and uh, Michael Caine. Ah, okay. Uh, so what, Michael Caine plays the older character, obviously. He plays the older character. It's very, from what I hear, it's, well, not very, it, it's quite different. And it's sort of, Harold Pinter wrote the script. It's it's changed in ways to make it more contemporary. It's kind of very, very stylized. And it. I don't know, it didn't get great reviews. Right. Uh, but it, I think it was a little over-disliked. I actually, there's things about it I like. And mm. I like sort of certain parts of the Harold Pinter dialogue, but I think they, I think they change sort of things in the third act in a way that people didn't like. Uh, right. Okay. Well, I've not, not seen that. I don't think I was even aware it existed, but the, the first one is, is really good fun and really well done and a bit of a relic of a, a happier, well, like a, just a very different England. So yeah, um, certainly worth investigating the original. I do hear the original is a lot better. So I'll mm. check out. Um, yeah, it, and also the modern one is like it's very clear it's almost like not like a film it is like sort of watching a play yeah that can be jarring um but this i I don't the original does feel a little bit like a play just because two characters certainly limits what you can do but um yeah certainly worth investigating uh i'll check it out and i have Um, i have one more book if that wets your whistle uh yeah let's do one more book and then Start, start rapping. <laughs> uh, it's another Pulitzer Prize winner, Steve. I just can't keep myself away, but not for fiction. I think it's Pulitzer Prize winner for autobiography, potentially history, but I think autobiography uh, or biography. Uh, it's Barbarian Days by William Finnegan. And uh, he's oh, like a kind of career journalist, I think, but it's his whole story about his life as an obsessive surfer uh, from when he grew up, I think he grew up in Hawaii uh, through to all the many different surf trips he's been on the way he writes about the the sport and the sensation of it and the kind of thrill and lifestyle around it. It's, it's really immersive and engaging and kind of perfect book for being isolated really. Cause you just get to travel the world with him and sort of live these experiences that he has and the, yeah, the kind of transcendent rush that, great surfers must get from you know i'm like not a bad skier or snowboarder and every now and then i've had these kind of moments where you you know everything else drops away and you're just in that moment for a few seconds and having this really amazing experience it seems like he gets that every time he gets out on the water and uh constantly chasing that experience is a bit of a drug and a rush and it's sort of taken over his whole life but yeah it covers what 30 40 years worth of of sort of traveling the world to surf and experience new things. It's just a magnificent book. I think it was on Obama's list of best books that he read whatever year it came out. So it got quite a lot of press coverage, but um, I feel like people have forgotten about it a little bit. It's maybe four or five years old. So well worth checking out for sure. It's magnificent. Uh, Barbarian Days by William Finnegan. Wonderful. Um, and, uh, well, to finish with wetting people's whistle on travel, then, uh, Obviously, I'm sure many, many people have seen them, but if you if you really want to, you know, get the cocaine rush of travel, as it were, and, uh, really, really imbibe and steep yourself in it, then do go and watch Anthony Bourdain Parts Unknown because there's many amazing episodes uh, in amazing far-flung places. It's, like, beautifully shot, brilliant, like, exploration of 
culture, food in different places, almost, they're almost like little, feel like quite like personal essays or journeys through these different places. And it really, uh, it will give you a fix right now if you want to sort of travel the world vicariously. Uh, yeah, there's no travel show I like better than those. So That's yeah, great. Uh, I've, I've never watched it, so I should certainly dip into it. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, you can jump in anywhere, but they're, they're very like, um, yeah, yeah, they're just very rich and it's almost often him just like meeting different interesting people there. It's not your conventional it's not about food and it's not just about travel. It's kind of a bit, bit of both. Um, awesome. Yeah, well worth it. Um, and that's it, folks. Um, <laughs> goose, the goose is cooked. The goose is cooked. Um, it's bubbling away. You've got plenty to, plenty to go with there. Um, yeah, <laughs> so thanks for joining us for another episode. We've got a whole lot of meaty topics to chew on we're going to bring you very soon um George that's it really I mean (laughs) probably won't be many more anecdotes to share by the next episode either so yeah um let's just let's all just keep on ticking over we'll go to a few uh we'll go to a few more heady uh yeah we've got a few heady episodes coming up but we want to make sure you've got plenty to plenty to keep yourself busy (laughs) you certainly have now um so yes thank you as always george appreciate you thank you for giving me a whole bunch of new things to go and watch and do thank you you are better than jeff bezos at recommending me things that are appropriate (laughs) they they amazon just recommend me things i already look at anyway yeah um, yeah wonderful stuff a pleasure pleasure as always thanks guys well, everyone, uh, go give us some nice reviews on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, all those places. Uh, we'll appreciate it very much. And uh, that's it. All right. Love you. Bye. <laughs>